You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Glad to have you with us. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. That is on page 1 in my Bible, if it helps you to find it in yours. Uh, We're going to start in verse 26, and uh, let's read through verse 31. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the, uh, the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said... Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And then God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you so much for another day that we have to come together and and to just be reminded afresh of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray that right now for every man, woman, and child who is here, that we will truly encounter you, that we will have our hearts encouraged. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, the comedic actor, Will Rogers, once said, Too many people spend money they do not have to buy things they do not need to impress people they do not like. And nearly a hundred years later, I would say his analysis is truer today than ever before. For example, the average American now carries $15,000 in credit card debt and consumes twice as many material goods as we did 50 years ago. The average American household is now stuffed with, on average, 3,000 items. And as a result of that, despite the fact that our homes have nearly tripled in the last 50 years, the U.S. Department of Energy reports that one out of every four Americans are unable to park their cars in the garage. This is why the home organization, which is a service that is responsible for, for trying to find places for all of our clutter... It's now an $8 billion industry that is growing at a rate of 10% a year, making it the fastest growing segment of commercial real estate industry over the past four decades. Needless to say, we live in what sociologists call a hyper-consumeristic society, a society that has made excessive consumption a natural and normal part of the American life. I think about uh, the, the terrorist attacks that occurred in New York on September 11th, 2001, where a shell-shocked nation was told that by refraining from buying and traveling and living a materialistic lifestyle that we were, and I quote, letting the terrorist win. I think back to the global economic recession in 2008 that economists are now telling us is the result of runaway debt and overspending, and yet despite the fact that our government leaders knew this, rather than them calling us as Americans to 
cut spending so we can pay off our debt, we were issued stimulus checks. And we were told basically to spend our way out of recession. On top of this, we are bombarded by, on average, 4,000 advertisements every single day where we are being lied to about what we need to have in order to be the best version of me. This is why psychologist Brennan Pratt says the following. We are currently living in an age where consumerism shapes our sense of identity and personality. It tells us what to desire, love, and have hope in, whether that be clearer skin, wider teeth, better handbags, or shoes. In essence, we are being sold on a story that says we're just one more purchase away from happiness. All that being said, we are living in a society where consumerism has not just become an economic system, it has become a belief system. Consumerism, in many ways, has become this new religion that not only defines our economy, but also our spirituality. I think of this graphic, I believe we can put on the screen by Sky Jathani, where we see how consumerism shapes our spirituality by putting not God, but self at the center of the universe. It's a spirituality that feeds on this narcissistic worldview that says everything we have or everything around us is determined, determined by its usefulness to me. It's a spirituality, right, where I stand at the center and everything and everyone else orbits around me. This, according to Mark Sayers, has become the elephant in the living room of contemporary Christianity. It's people's ability to simply sit in church, to consume the experience the way one would a great sporting event, a thrilling movie, or an exciting theme park ride, and then to dispose of it totally unchanged at the soul level. Sayers goes on to write in his book, The Vertical Self, when this happens, worship service becomes a pseudo-media event. Church building becomes a theme park. Christian leader becomes Christian celebrity. Teaching becomes entertainment. Salvation becomes self-help. Discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement. Church becomes a brand, and the gospel becomes a slogan. The reality is, if we want to become the men and the women and the church that Jesus has created us to be, consumeristic Christianity has to die. There has to be this tectonic shift in how we approach the church. And to help us make that shift, I want to invite you again to look with me in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, and, and, and just to set the context for you, out of nothing, God created everything that there is. He created the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the mountains and the oceans, right? And animals and all sorts of beauty. And then at the climax of his creation, if you look at verse 26, he creates man. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. Question I want to ask you this morning is when you look at Genesis chapter one, who made the world? God. Yes, yeah, not a trick question. God. And did God keep the world for himself? Yes or no? No. He creates oceans, he creates, uh, creates mountains, and everything that was beautiful, and then out of his own generosity and goodness, he created man, and he invited man into the world, not because he was lonely or he needed us, but simply because he wanted us to enjoy his creation. What that means for us today, and we need to get this, is that our God is not a frugal God. Our God is not a cheap God. 
but rather he is an extravagantly generous God who rather than keeping everything to himself out of the overflow of his own perfections, used his resources to bring us life. And I hope that as a church, we never take this for granted. That we never become a people who live with this attitude of self-entitlement that God and everyone else around me owes me something. You know, that, that somehow this, this attitude that, that meant everything I have, I've worked for it, and therefore, who are you to tell me what to do with it, or who is God to tell me what to do with it, but rather I get to do whatever I want with my stuff, whenever I want, however I want. Because the truth is, according to the scriptures, we are living in God's world, which means we are eating God's food. We're drinking God's drink. Right now, we are breathing God's air. All that we have, we had because God in his great grace and generosity has chosen to share it with us. Again, in Genesis, we see out of nothing, God creates everything. And then he creates man as a way of sharing in this goodness. And not only does he call us to share in his goodness, but he calls us to extend it to others. If you notice, you look back at our text again, it says that, that God, when he made us, he made us in his image. That means he made us to mirror him to the world, to show people a picture of what he is like, to reflect with our bank account and our schedules and our relationships how generous God really is. This is the life that every human being was created to live. And yet, unfortunately, as you know, the man was created to reflect with our lives the generosity of our creator. This life has been greatly distorted. If you flip over to Genesis chapter 3, we read... The story, and you see maybe at the top of, of your Bible, mine says the fall, and the reason theologians call this the fall is it's a story about how man would fall away from the life that God created us to experience with him. And we read in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you that, she, that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I just want to stop right here and recognize something for a moment. Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that the thief, the devil, the serpent, he's come to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what Satan is after in your life right now. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to destroy you. And I want you to please notice this. One of Satan's greatest tactics that he uses to rob you of the life that you were created to experience is to get you to question God's word. Did God really say he loved you? You sure about that? He really say he's going to provide for you if you trust him? Are you sure? You sure he's going to protect you? You sure he's going to always be there for you? At the heart of a hyper-consumeristic, self-entitled attitude is always an unbelief that God is who he says he is and he will do everything he says he's going to do. So we see right here in verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Come on. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, don't you know, Eve, God is holding back on you? Don't you know he is not good? Don't you know you can't trust him? Don't you know he's a celestial killjoy? Don't you know that if you want to have pleasure, if you want to be happy and fulfilled, you need to run your life your way rather than God's way? That's what he's saying. So verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. 
in a garden full of yeses. The serpent convinces Adam and Eve the one thing they need to be happy is the one thing they don't have. And it's the exact same thing that he does to you and me every day. If you could just get a new phone, then you'd be happy. If you could just get that new piece of furniture, if you could just get a bigger house, if you could just get, right, then you would be happy. Then your life would be complete. And guys, it's a sham. It's a lie. Because as many of you know, oftentimes the more we consume, the more we want to consume. I think of John D. Rockefeller, who had more money than anyone in the history of the world. And you may remember this. Over a century ago, he was asked, how much money is enough? And what was his response? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Maybe that's where some of you find yourself this morning. If I could have just a little bit more money, just a little bit more house, just a little bit more, I mean, you fill in the blank, then I will be satisfied. And please hear me today. Listen, there is nothing wrong with having nice things. I had a 2006 Honda Accord a couple years ago. I traded it in for a 2010 Toyota Tacoma. I used to live in a 1,500 square foot home with my wife, and, and we now live in a, a house in Carriage Hills that has 2,000 square feet. I've got an iPhone in my back pocket. Okay? There's nothing wrong with having nice things, but the truth is, though material goods can bring us momentary happiness as dopamine is released every time we make that purchase, Material things cannot provide for us long-term satisfaction and happiness. And there is all sorts of research behind this. In fact, I was reading a report published by the psychology department at San Diego State University. And after analyzing the mental health records from 1938 to 2007 from more than 63,000 young adults, what they concluded was that, 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 that basically depression right now in our society is, is climbing through the roof. And their concluding thought was is that consumerism was the major leading cause in the rise of depression among young adults in America today. And that is because at the end of the day, listen, though excessive consumption can lead us to having a bigger house and a newer car and trendier clothes and better technology, though it can give us overfilled drawers, it always leaves us with unfulfilled souls. It never satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. And that's what we see in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they eat of this fruit. They pursue instant gratification. They go after the one thing they don't have. In verse 7, look what happens next. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So now they're not filled with pleasure. They're filled with shame. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden and I hid myself because I was afraid. I right, so there's fear. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said to the woman, the man said, actually, it's the woman you gave me. Right? She's the problem. That's why I screwed up. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. In verse 13, the Lord God looked at the woman and said, what is this you have done? She said, oh, it's a serpent. He deceived me. And I ate. So at one point, right, I mean, Adam and Eve, they're enjoying perfect communion with one another, but then 
right? They consume this fruit. They eat of the one thing they're not supposed to. And rather than being filled with pleasure, notice they're filled with shame and guilt and fear, right? Sin enters the picture. It fractures and distorts everything. And listen, guys, as a result, because uh, sin has now spread to all of us as human beings, we all now, every single one of us, have to fight this temptation to live as childish consumers rather than as a generous giver. And this is bad news. This is bad news. But fortunately for us, the story does not end in Genesis 3. If you flip over with me uh, to Genesis 12, please do so. Genesis chapter 12, I want you to see this because though there are consequences to Adam and Eve's disobedience that we all still experience today, God does not leave us in our own mess. He doesn't leave us to try to fix ourselves or work our way back to him. But rather, he comes to this man named Abram, who would later have his name changed to Abraham. And he would say to him, I'm going to partner with you to help fix my world, to make it the way it should be again. So look at this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Verse 1, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So leave everything you've ever known. Leave your comforts, leave your possessions. Abraham, live with an open-handed life. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. Just so you know, for those who aren't familiar with the story, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're old at this point in their life. Medically speaking, they should not be able to have kids, right? Things are not working the way they probably should be or used to. But God comes and says, I'm going to perform a miracle. I'm going to give you a child. And through this child, he's going to have a lot of descendants. And through these descendants, I'm going to create a nation. Okay, that's what he's saying here. Right? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Now, why? Why am I going to bless you? Why am I going to give you so much? Just so you can kind of live as a rock star? He says, no, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those, verse 3, who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you know the rest of the story, right, again, despite the fact that Abraham and Sarah are old and are not able to have children, they do have a child. His name is Isaac. Isaac is a promised one through whom the nation of Israel would come so they could bless the rest of the nations. And as the story goes forward, I want you to flip with me to Genesis 22. And this is the last place I'll have you turn to, Genesis 22. Right, And Isaac is now a grown man. He's a grown man and he's with his dad. And I want you to see this story. This is one of the craziest stories in all of the Bible to me. Genesis 22 verse 1. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham. So now his chain, name, name has been changed from Abraham to Abraham. And he said to Abraham, He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said to him, Here I am. Verse 2, he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Just to make sure we're all on the same page here, God comes to Abraham and yes, he says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. I want you to kill your son. Like, don't miss the emotional connection that we all should have to this story, especially those of you who are parents. I have three kids, two boys. 
if God came to me and said, Jared, I want you to sacrifice one of your boys, I'm not sure I'm going to be obedient in this area. Just being honest with you. And yet God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to offer your son as a burnt offering. And Abraham says, okay, okay. I mean, clearly we see it, Abraham, this is a man who believes everything I have is a gift from God, including my own kids. They're not mine. And because he believes that the giver of all good gifts are better than the gifts themselves, he says, you tell me what to do with the gifts and I'll do it. That's what we see here. Crazy story. And so in verse six, let's keep reading. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. I'm going to stop there and say this. Some of you, maybe you believe the lie that God will never call you to do anything without first showing you on paper how it makes sense. God would never ask you to do anything without showing you first how all the I's will be dotted and all the T's will be crossed. And that sounds really, really good, but the problem with that is the Bible. The problem with that is stories like this. The problem with that, I think of the story of Joshua comes to mind right now, where God literally calls the people of Israel to go up against an army in Jericho that is, humanly speaking, impossible for them to defeat. And what does God do before they go into the battle? First, he circumcises all the men. I'm like, how effective is that going to be, right? All these wounded men going into battle. And then, right before they go into battle, he says, everybody lay down your weapons and pick up a trumpet and just march around. It's like, right? And he's like, just do that seven times and the walls will come tumbling down. Just makes zero sense whatsoever. There are many times where God is going to call you to do things that do not make sense logically, but you have to trust that he is faithful, you have to trust in those moments that, 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 that God, though, yes, he will call me at times to do things that are beyond my power and beyond my provision. That it is in these moments that I get to experience the intimacy and the power of God in my life like never before. God will constantly call you to do things beyond your provision, beyond your power. And the question is, in those moments, will you choose to walk by faith or will you choose to walk by sight? Will you trust logically, just in what you know, will you just say, okay, if this makes sense here, and as long as it, you know, or will you trust that God always knows best? Abraham is someone who says, I trust that God knows best. So in verse 9, we see when they came to the place of which God has told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, uh, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I want to ask you real quick, what is it that you fear the most right now? What is it that you are most in awe of? What is it that you are most convinced that if I could just have this, then I would be satisfied and then I would be fulfilled? It's an important question to, to answer this morning because, listen, whatever that is, whatever you fear the most, you will absolutely submit your life to. 
For example, if you fear being financially poor, money will become your God. You will not tell your money what to do, it will tell you what to do. If you fear what other people think about you, you will be controlled by the opinions of others. If you fear your kids, if you look at them and, and you feel like, man, I, I could never really be fully satisfied if I did not have these kids and if my kids did not think that I'm amazing, then your kids will dominate your money, your schedule, your thoughts, where you go to church, everything about you. What you fear the most will define you and drive you. And what's incredible to me here is what Abraham feared the most was God. He respected God. He honored God above anything or anything else. And watch how God responds. Verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and look and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is what theologians refer to as substitutionary atonement. Isaac was about to die. He is about to be slaughtered, but rather than Abraham taking Isaac's life, God provides a substitute to die in Isaac's place. And the whole reason I share that with you this morning, especially in light of a talk on giving, is because according to the scriptures, this is the same thing that our generous God has done for you and for me. You see, just as God provided the lamb to be slaughtered in the place of Isaac, God the Father has provided Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, to be slaughtered in the place for you and for me. In a time when the world needed it the most, when we were lost and we were without hope, once again, God, just as we saw in the creation account, out of nothing created something. A virgin named Mary would give birth to a baby boy named Jesus. And Jesus would grow up and he would live a perfect sinless life that we could never live. And then he, thousands of years later, would walk up the same mountain that Isaac would walk up and he would pour himself out as an offering for you and for me. You see, just as Isaac carried wood up a mountain for his father, Jesus Christ carried a wooden cross up a mountain for his father. But unlike Abraham, what's incredible to me is unlike Abraham, God did not spare his only son. But instead, he offered him up to die a bloody and a brutal death for you and me so that now, rather than receiving the death that we deserve to receive for our sins against God, we receive the life that we are longing for in him. And you see, it's only whenever this truth fully settles into your heart, when you see that God the Father gave up his most prized possession for you, his son Jesus Christ, can we then give up our most prized possessions for him. I've been reading a book called The Survival Guide for the Soul by Ken Shagamatsu. I believe that's how you say his name. And here's what he says. When we grow in deeper dependence on God and treasure his love and care, we will discover an abiding joy and contentment that the world around us does not know. We will also find ourselves, look at this. Doesn't this sound amazing? We'll find ourselves craving fewer things that we don't really need and instead longing to open up our hands and share from the fullness of what we've already been given. In Acts 20.35, Jesus himself said that it is better to give than it is to receive. For some of you in this room right now, you are stuffed. But you're unfulfilled because you've believed the opposite. You are believing a lie, guys. 
You are a part of a new religion that has told you it's actually better to receive than to give. That it's better for you to live a closed-handed life than with an open hand. And please hear me, this is not the heart of God. The truth is this morning, if we get what we deserve according to these scriptures, we get hell every time. But rather than God giving us the hell that we deserve, he has given us the free gift of salvation for anyone and everyone who now would just come to him with the empty hands of faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you have received this gift in response to this, every year as pastors, we call this church to recommit to giving back to God, to give of our time and our talents and our treasures. By giving of our time, what we mean by that is we are calling you as members of this church to show up. To show up. To be a regular presence in the lives of others. To make commitments and keep commitments. We live in a society right now, especially in the millennial generation, where commitments is a thing of the past. We cannot commit to a long obedience in the same direction. As soon as it gets hard, we're told if it's hard, it must be bad, and we hit eject. We need people to show up and to keep showing up. To reject the temptation to live the overly busy life that everyone else is living and then just shove Jesus into the nooks and crannies of what's left over. That is a recipe for disaster. We call for you as members every single year to stop letting the world tell you how to schedule your life, but instead to say, Jesus, I want to bring my entire schedule under your lordship. I want to submit to you not just my Sunday, but my every day. That's what we mean when we say we want you to give of your time so that ultimately you can invest and go even deeper with God and with others. So we're calling you to. And we call you to give of your talents. What we mean by that is we want you to think about how have you been wired? What is your personality? Do things like the Enneagram. Take the spiritual gifting test. It's on your membership renewal form. Right? Work through this stuff with your DNA and your missional community. Think about your education, the education and the training you have received. And think about how have I uniquely been gifted so that I can help serve and bless and build up the church. So that ultimately we can show people more of a greater picture of what Christ is really like. Finally, by giving of your treasures, what we mean by that is actually as members of this church, we believe God calls us to give of our finances. And when we look in the scriptures, what we see is the scriptures calls us to give to three places. Well, we're called first to give to the poor. We're called to give to the poor. This is the heart of God. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Do you realize that every time you do something for someone who is in need, you are doing it not just to them, you're doing it to Christ himself. Jesus loves to see us be generous with the poor. And therefore, as a church, we want to budget our lives in such a way where we're able to give to those who don't have whenever a need arises. Secondly, we see not only we called to give to the poor, we're called to give to the community of faith. We're called to give to this church, to those in our missional community to help provide for them. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So as we have every opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. I had a great chance to see this this past week within my own missional community. Um, we have a man in our missional community whose brother suddenly passed away, and the family was not able to pay for the funeral. And the next day, I went over to take some money on behalf of me and my wife to help them with the funeral cost. And by the time I got there, um, his brother lives in a different country, by the way. The funeral total funeral cost in this country was $650. So I got to take some money, and by the time I get there the day after his brother dies, not only had they received $650 from our missional community, they'd received $700. 
And I didn't prompt that. I didn't tell our missional community, hey, this is something good that we should do. It was just out of the overflow of their own hearts. They realized that, man, we need to take care of people within this household of faith. And they provided. It's an incredible picture of the gospel. We're called to budget our lives in a way that we can do that. And then finally, not only are we called to give to the poor, not only are we called to give to the community of faith, but we are called to give to the local church for the purpose of leadership and equipping, for the purpose of ensuring that pastors and the staff and the church as a whole has the resources needed to continue to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. And we don't have time to read text on this, but you see this all throughout the scripture. You see it even in the New Testament. You see it in places like Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5, Galatians 6. Jesus himself talks about it in Matthew 23. And basically the idea behind this is just simple, guys. Like ministry takes money. That's not like, an, that's not like a non-spiritual comment. Like just as your family needs money in order to survive, this family needs money in order to survive. And oftentimes people will ask me, like, how much are we called to give? And what we just say is, look, though the New Testament never commands us to give a specific amount, What we do see is this ancient practice that dates all the way back to Abraham where the people of God would give a tithe. And the idea of the tithe is God basically came to the people of Israel and he said, look, because everything you have is from me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you, you can keep 90% of what I've already given you, which is really mine, and you just give back 10%. You just give back 10%. And fortunately for me, like this is an example that was set really well by my parents um, some of you did not have that. I had that as a, as a kid. I saw my parents do this faithfully, even when they had nothing, even when they didn't know how they were going to pay their bills. And so this is something me and my wife have done ever since we've gotten married. And my daughter uh, got birthday money uh, this week, and, and she was tithing off of that today too. I mean, it's something we're teaching our kids and parting to them. Um, my wife and I, we, we, we create a budget. If you don't have a budget, I would encourage you to do that. If you don't have a budget, you're going to spend it somewhere. But my wife and I, you, you look at our line items We set aside, this is how much we're going to give to utilities, this is how much we're going to give to gas money and medical bills and, you know, eating out, whatever else. But at the top of that, we're going to give 10% of our gross income to fellowship. It's just budgeted into our lives. And for some of you here, I just want to take a moment to say this. Some of you give very faithfully to this church, and I want to say thank you for that. Thank you. The reason we're able to sit here in this building right now and our kids are able to have the ministry that they have and we have staff is because of your faithful giving. So we just want to say thank you for that. And if you're here and you're not a member of this church, I want to say this. We're not asking you to give anything, okay? Like we don't want anything. We don't want your money. We want to be a blessing to you. And, and, and so I'm not talking to you. For some of you in here, maybe you are a member of this church. And last year you were not faithful in giving. And I want to say, like, man, there's grace for that. And we love you. And we're glad you're here. And fellowship is a, a safe place where you can work through that and process that and grow not on our timing but God's timing. But what I want to do want to say is this. If you're here and you're using the excuse of you just don't have very much money and that's why you can't give to the Lord, I want to encourage you this year more than ever to, 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 to trust God with your finances, even when it doesn't make sense. Um, the reality is more money is not going to lead you to give more to the church. It's just not. In fact, the statistics say something different. I was reading uh, this past week on Barner Research where, said the, uh, where they said the following... That 8% of people who make $20,000 or less give 10% to the church. 5% of Christians who make twenty to 29000 gave 10% to the church. Only 4% of those who make forty to 50000 a year give 10%. And then only 2% of those who make sixty to 75000 give 10%. The reality is usually the more you make, the less you give. And you're like, well, why is that? Because if you make $50 a month, how hard is it to give $5 away? But if you make $5,000 a month, 
It's a little bit hard to get $500 away because that $500 is a new car. It's a new truck. Dang, man, I get a new ride, right? $500 a month. The more you make, typically the harder it is to give. And that's because, listen, at the end of the day, please hear me, we're about done today. At the end of the day, giving is a lot less about how much we have in the bank and it's a lot more about what we have in our hearts. Jesus says that in Luke 16, 10 through 13. Giving actually has nothing to do so much with, with what you have in your account, but it's about realizing what Jesus has already done on your account. And what I want to say, I want to be really clear, the church does not need your money. We just paid off our building, right? Um, we, we're doing fine financially. We don't need your money. I'm not, I'm, this is not me giving a talk because I'm like, I'm secretly trying to get you to give more money because I'm like, well, if we don't do it, we're going to be able to pay the bills. We're doing fine. And I also want to say this, God doesn't need your money. He really doesn't. God doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your treasures. Right? All of us could fall to dust right now, and God is still going to fulfill his mission with or without us. And therefore, what I want to be very clear on today, please hear me, is this. When it comes to living a life of generosity, what you need to understand is the point is not to give because God needs it. The point is to give because you need it. You need to give for you. When you give, sure, God does great things through you for others. But more than that, God wants you to give because he wants to do great things in you. In the words of Randy Alcorn, giving is God's cure for greed. Giving is a way that God frees us up from the bondage and slavery, from living a close-handed life, and then conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus who is the most generous and joy-filled human being to ever walk the face of the earth. And by the way, please hear me. Those two things go together. Generosity and joy-filled. I don't know about you, but some of the most miserable people I know are greedy, stingy people. I think about Scrooge in the Christmas story, right? Or Christmas Carol. And yet on the flip side of that, some of the happiest and most pleasant people to be around are generous. They live with an open hand because they understand that enduring happiness comes not from what we can gain, but what we can give for the purpose of being a blessing to others. I don't know about you, but that's the life I want to live. I know I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to love poverty, but I do love stuff. I do at times. And so I'm not just preaching at you, like I'm here with you. I want to be a man who is increasingly known not as a life taker, but as a life giver. Not as someone who's showing up here and saying, hey, what can you do for me? But what can I do for you? I want to be increasingly known as someone who is not a consumer, but a contributor. I want to be known as a man who lives less like our culture and more like Christ. The one who, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Each week as we end, we partake of communion to remember that reality. If there is anybody in the world, think about this, if there is anybody in the world who deserved to live a self-entitled life, it was Jesus Christ. And yet in Mark 10, 45, he says, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. If you have trusted in the ransom of Christ on your behalf, we invite you to come. We have two stations, two in the front. Two stations in the back, gluten-free option for you in this corner if you want that. If, even if you're not a member of this church, we encourage you to come and partake of communion. If you're here today, though, here's what we'd ask before we head out. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, we are so glad you're here. I can honestly say this. In some ways, I'm more glad that you're here than anybody else. So glad to have you here today. 
if you don't believe like us, and if you're not a Christian. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Though there will not be very many closed doors to you here in our church, this is one area that, that we would say that we, we close this off to those who are not yet Christians. And that's really not because we're trying to, to put you on the outside. It's just by taking of this, there's no benefit of it for you. Um, by taking of communion, if you're not a Christian, God's not going to love you more or answer some unanswered prayer or anything like that. Like This is just a symbol of hope for those who've already trusted in Jesus. And if you've not trusted in Christ, what I ask of you today is this. Rather than receiving communion, receive Jesus. I was reminded of a quote that Chuck Deschwin shared with our missional community leaders this past week that said, it's unlikely that people will give up magnificent things if all they know is a mediocre Savior. Some of you today have a mediocre Savior because you do not know the real Jesus. You have not had your sins forgiven. You have not experienced His grace. And I pray today, if you have not, today will be the day of salvation for you. And if you have questions about that, I'll be up here in the front. Adam will be as well, and you come and talk to us. Let's stand together, and as the band comes forward, I'm going to pray for us. We'll sing one more song, take communion, be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for everyone who is here. We thank you, God, that you've given us another opportunity today to hear the gospel and to respond. Would you please help us truly to believe that what we talked about today is true? That we were worthy of hell, and yet you have given us everything we need that we could not do for ourselves in Jesus Christ. I pray that nobody today leaves here in fear, shame, or guilt but that we leave here filled up with the life that only we can experience and the satisfaction and the salvation that's found in you, Jesus. And it's your name we pray. Amen.